Welcome to Present Value, a podcast created by students at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management. I'm your host, Chris Alberico. If you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review and share it. We have Professor Manoj Thomas joining us on Present Value this month. Thomas holds the Brazano Family Term Professorship of Management and is an Associate Professor of Marketing here at the Johnson School. He has a Bachelor's of Electrical Engineering from the National Institute of Technology in India, an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management, and a PhD in Marketing from the Stern School of Business at NYU. Before his PhD, Thomas spent seven years working in industry in several consumer product marketing roles. He is the author of and contributor to volumes of research articles, working papers, and research presentations. He is also the co-author of the book, Why Consumers Don't Buy, The Go and Stop Signals. Professor Manoj, welcome to Present Value. Thank you, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. I think a good spot to start our conversation is consumer spending, which you've spent much of your career working on. Traditionally, consumer spending models have been based on an economic or rational perspective. There's a lot of energy and thought around this orthodox view of the rational actor. Could you elaborate on that traditional view? and perhaps tell us some flaws about that thinking. Yeah, so, um, you know, my, as you said, my background is in engineering, my undergraduate degree is in engineering. And I was always interested by human behavior, but when I came to do my PhD, I was expecting to use that engineering perspective to characterize human behavior. But very soon I realized that many of the brain processes that drive behavior occur beyond our awareness. We don't even know what factors influence our brain patterns. And so I set out to study human behavior, not always in terms of you know the conscious articulated part of the brain that influences behavior, but digging deeper into the unconscious part, the subjective experiences, uh, as we refer to as the heuristics that influence our major decision-making process. I'm a little bit surprised. As you mentioned, you have an engineering background, so I would think you'd be drawn to the standard rational actor idea. But instead, you've spent a lot of your time thinking about unconscious behavioral drivers. I'm curious, where did that come from? What brought you to thinking about this and working on it? I think my first research project when I was a PhD student was, uh, you know, I come from India, and I went to the shopping malls in the U.S., and the one thing I noticed in the U.S. is all the prices have very weird endings. They always end in, like, 1.99, 2.99. And I couldn't make, uh, I couldn't figure out why all the prices are set like this. And I went and talked to a few people here, and I asked them, so why are all the prices 1.99? And they would tell me that, oh, I don't know, it doesn't, it never works on me. If I actually see a price 1.99, I round it up to 2. So I started thinking, so if you talk to a customer, the customers believe they're completely immune to these 9-9 ending effects, but yet the retailers are using it. So there must be a reason why these prices are influencing without the consumers being aware of it. So that was the first research project that I did, and I realized that you know the way we read prices, we read them from left to right. And even before we complete reading the prices, the magnitude judgments are anchored on the leftmost digit. So if I see 1.99, the magnitude that is registered in my mind is closer to 1 than to 2. And I'm not aware of it. So in my conscious brain, I'm thinking that, oh, it's 1.99 is 2. But in my non-conscious part of the brain, 1.99 is closer to 1. And that's kind of my first project. And, and I got intrigued by it. And 
all the other research projects I've undertaken since then is trying to understand the latent unconscious processes that drive human behavior. But I think I should clarify something here. When I talk about the unconscious part, you pitched unconscious and irrational as two opposing ends, and that, that's not necessarily correct. The unconscious brain often evolves in an adaptive manner, adapting itself to the environment. So the heuristics and the shortcuts and the unconscious processes that we have learned are all that is actually making us smarter. But oftentimes these unconscious and conscious thoughts commingle, and it's very difficult to delineate what is unconscious and what is non-conscious. So what we as researchers do is we take situations where the unconscious effects are contradicting the conscious drivers, and then we try to characterize those to say, well, you know, this cannot be conscious. This has to be caused by a non-conscious process. And in those situations, it becomes a bias. But I think most of our unconscious brain is kind of working towards making us smarter and evolve as a species. Along those lines, I think it would be good for us to lay some groundwork for the rest of our conversation. In the book you co-authored, you spend a lot of time talking about the dichotomy between this utilitarian mindset and a more hedonistic or pleasure-seeking mindset. This is a well-established spectrum in psychology, but isn't really widely adopted in business education. Perhaps there is a flaw in some current business practices that doesn't keep this utilitarian pleasure spectrum in mind? That's right. So you know, I spend half my time teaching and the other half I spend uh, doing research. And I realized that uh, the research part of me, uh, we know a lot of about human behavior. There are lots of papers published and um, as a community, we have made lots of advances in understanding human behavior. But when it comes to MBA teaching, most of the teaching is informed rather by the homo economic, economicus view of the human being, which is largely portrayed as the rational human being based only on deliberative, making, taking decisions based only on deliberative considerations. So we realize that we have to use an MBA paradigm and use case studies, but use those case studies to highlight how the human mind works and come up with a framework to enable the MBA students and managers to incorporate the complex decision-making process that consumers go through while they make decisions. So in that process, we started with something very, very foundational, very fundamental. Plato and Socrates have said that the human mind is governed by the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Jeffrey Allen Gray, a British psychologist, has talked about the behavioral inhibition system, which inhibits behaviors, and the behavioral activation system, which activates behaviors. Kurt Levin, another psychologist, in fact, who spent some time at Cornell a long time ago, he talked about the force field analysis, where there are facilitating forces and inhibiting forces that drive behavior. And ultimately, the behavior is seen as the outcome of these two competing forces. Tori Higgins at Columbia, he talked about promotion orientation and prevention orientation. So you see that there are lots of people who have talked about the fact that human behavior is basically determined by a combination of two different forces, a driving force that drives behavior and an opposing force that inhibits behavior. So we took this idea and came up with the ghost of framework, which we thought is a kind of a managerially applicable framework, which we can use to characterize human behavior. Now, when we did that, and when we tried to explain some of the prevalent case studies using this framework, we realized that we need to make one more distinction. So we introduced the taxonomy, again, borrowing from lots of work that has been done in academics, is that there are two different types of go and stop signals. Some go signals are based on rational utilitarian considerations, and some are more less conscious, less deliberative, more relying on feelings. 
So we came up with go signals that can be utilitarian and go signals that are more hedonic. Likewise, the stop signals can be utilitarian and stop signals can be hedonic. So now it's basically a two by two framework, which most MBAs and managers are quite familiar with. The idea here is that, okay, there are go signals that drive behavior and there are stop signals that inhibit behavior. And the go signals can be based on your rational deliberative considerations, or it can be based on spontaneous feelings that you might not be able to articulate. Likewise, stop signals can be based on, oh, I, this product is not good for me. Or it can be based on a fleeting sense of guilt or an anticipation of regret that is stopping you from buying the product. So that's, that's in summary of the framework that uh, we talked about. I see. And you know, to really drive this point home, maybe you could give the listeners a specific example where a business made maybe a strategic mistake because they misunderstood this incentive-based, this go-and-stop signal that's based on this utilitarian pleasure spectrum. Yeah. Let's talk about the 100-calorie pack case study. So in the early 2000s, I think it was Keebler that came up with the idea of launching the 100-calorie pack of cookies. And it was a raging success. And I didn't realize this till I actually had a personal shopping experience. So I went to Wegmans and I was trying to, you know, I like chocolate chip cookies. Who doesn't like chocolate chip cookies? So I was standing in front of the aisle and there was this Keebler chocolate chip cookies, the big pack for sale, two for five dollars. And those are my favorite, one of, one of my favorite cookies. And I said, they're on sale and I should be buying them. And I was like, maybe I should not be buying them because they are high calories and all of that. And then I look around and I see that there is this 100 calorie pack up there. And my lucky day, those packs are also on sale, two for $5. So I put them in the cart. I'm a happy customer. I check them out. I come home. And then I look at, I start comparing the unit prices. And I realize that the unit price of the 100-calorie pack is approximately 300% more than that of the, the regular cookie pack. And what they've done is they've taken the same cookies and made it smaller and put it in a smaller pack and charging like 300% more. Now, some people, when I discuss this in the class, some students say, well, that's just the price of portion control. But the interesting part, Chris, is that if you were to ask any customer, how much are you willing to pay for portion control? What premium would be willing to pay for portion control? I bet you that most people would say maybe 20%, 30%. I don't think anybody would say more than 50%. But here is a situation where customers are paying like 300% more, and they're happily doing so. So this was a case where the Keebler cookies managers and other people who followed suit realized that people are driven towards cookies because they have a strong go signal. It's a very hedonic go signal. But that go signal has been inhibited by a stop signal. And they came up with this heuristic to break the stop signal, which is that, okay, this is 100 calories, so you don't have to feel guilty or you don't have to anticipate the regret. And you are so relieved by the resolution of the conflict between the go and the stop signals that you don't even think about the price. Now, another interesting follow-up to this story is that every Tom, Dick, and Harry who was in the food business jumped onto this bandwagon and everybody's got a 100-calorie pack. There's a 100-calorie pack of Cheetos. There's a 100-calorie pack of chips. There's a 100-calorie pack of every food item. And Ocean Spray, which I think at that point in time was actually led by a Johnson School alum who was the CEO of Ocean Spray. It's a great company. They do great, bring out great products. They also decided to go on this 100-calorie brand wagon. So they had this Craisins, which is basically dried cranberries. And they came up with these 100-calorie Craisins pack, and it was not selling. So they did a, you know, it was an interesting case study, and we did an analysis of it. And I think the answer was quite obvious. The obvious answer is that, well, for the case of cookies, you have this strong go signal, and the go signals are inhibited by the stop signal. 
And the 100 calorie pack removes the stop signal and makes people more likely to buy those cookies. In the case of craisins, there is no such go signal. People are not salivating over craisins and craisins are seen as health food. And the reason why people don't buy craisins is because the go signals are weak. And the reason why people don't buy cookies is because the stop signals are too strong. The 100 calorie pack reduces the stop signal. The same intervention will not work for craisins because craisin purchases are not inhibited by stop signals. And then you think about like, so why would the ocean spray managers make this mistake? And, and the answer boils down to, I think, the question that you asked, uh, which is that they didn't realize that the drivers of purchase decisions of craisins are not the same as the drivers of purchase decisions of cookies and other impulsive products. So I think managers often don't think deeply about what are the go and stop signals. And I think more importantly, they fail to appreciate to what extent these go and stop signals are hedonistic or utilitarian. And that varies from context to context and product to product. And a deeper appreciation of these go and stop signals and the precise nature of these go and stop signals can help them design better interventions. You know, that's a that's a fascinating story. And it seems it seems complex. Like there's there's a lot going on there and you mentioned there's this misunderstanding from managers, but it doesn't seem like that's always an easy thing to do. I feel like understanding the context or going a little bit deeper might be useful for our listeners and for me. One thing we've discussed before is this JCPenney case. It's very famous. Um, they brought on a very successful person to run that that business, and it actually didn't turn out the way they had expected. And I, I feel that this this go and stop spectrum might, might apply here. Could you talk about that case a little bit? Yeah, I think... Um... The JCPenney case is a very good illustration that the drivers of behavior actually vary quite a bit across context. And if managers don't understand or appreciate the disparity in these drivers of behavior, then they could end up making mistakes. So as you know, JCPenney, 2011, they hired Ron Johnson, who was the person who was instrumental for setting up Apple stores, um, and Apple retail stores, and he had done a marvelous job setting up those stores, and those stores were doing phenomenally well. And before that, he worked at Target. But all these places, he was dealing mostly with brands that are hedonistic, right? So Target is, relative to Walmart, is a more hedonistic brand where people go there and are willing to pay a premium because they get a positive experience, and Apple, much more so, right? And then when he came to JCPenney, because he grew up in that environment, if you, if you will, he decided to focus on making JCPenney a more experiential place, for the JCPenney customers. But what I think failed to realize is that a typical JCPenney customer is influenced more by the stop signal. So JCPenney typically is a store where they had like at least 50% of the products on sale at any point in time. And they were marked down from like $70 to $40, huge discounts. And the people would go into JCPenney not to have this great experience or not to have the best product, but they would go to JCPenney because they want to get the best value. So they would see, go in there, see the discounts, and then they would buy the product because they think it's on discount, it's a good value, it, it justifies their purchase decision, and therefore they buy it. But I think Ron Johnson and his team failed to appreciate that because in their background, the Apple products are never stolen on discounts. And people buy Apple products for the hedonic aspect of the brand. And he wanted to make JCPenney customers like that. And what he did is he went, he went ahead and he implemented a fair and square pricing strategy, which means that no discounts, no price queues, everyday low price across uh, all products. On the face of it, it sounds quite reasonable, right? I mean, if you have 50% of the products on discount, and if the discount rates are as high as like 30, 
one could argue that, which is what he did, one could argue that people, customers would lose trust in the price. And maybe that's the reason why people are not buying. And when he dropped this uh, fair and square pricing strategy, what really happened is that the strategy completely backfired. I think when he joined uh, JCPenney, turnover uh, sales was around $18 billion. And within a year of that implementation of the strategy, the revenue fell from $18 billion to around $15 billion. The market capitalization went down by around 40%. Huge losses. People lost their jobs. And it basically came from not understanding the drivers of JCPenney customers and Ron Johnson and his team not appreciating that the drivers of customers at Apple stores versus at Target are quite different from that at JCPenney. JCPenney customers are more utilitarian and they're more sensitive to the reduction of the stop signals. Whereas when you're going to Apple stores or when you're going to Target, those customers are more hedonistic and they're more sensitive to the increase in go signals. So you have to understand and appreciate the sensitivity in different types of signals before you start designing interventions in the marketplace. You know, what's always interesting to me about these stories of successful people coming in and making big mistakes like this, because this, this has truly been a mistake that JCPenney ha hasn't recovered from quite yet, is that they seem on their face to be good ideas and good strategies. I know we have this hindsight where we can see it after the fact where, hey, this didn't make any sense, but maybe in the moment it did make sense. And I wonder, is some of this just luck? Are some people more predisposed to make the right decisions and looking at these consumer insights where it's pleasure-seeking or utilitarian-seeking type of view? Or is there a way to avoid these common mistakes or these, these big mistakes that we've seen in countless cases of, over the years? That's a great question. I think uh, there are two parts of the question. Like, first question is, um, you know, why are some people more successful? And the second part of the question is, how can those failures be avoided? So I think the people who are naturally more successful are better at reading the drivers of consumer behavior. They have a good sense of what drives their consumers. And they may not always do it through research. Some, some people like Steve Jobs, um, you know, might be very good in the, in the technology space, understanding that aesthetics can be an important differentiator of tech products and use that insight to develop products that are aesthetically appealing. But the reality is that human behavior is so complex. So let's take your own example, Chris. If you go out for lunch, you're likely to be quite utilitarian. You'd look for a meal that is inexpensive. You'd look for quick service and you want to get out there fast and go back to your work. If you're going out for dinner with your date, you want to have a great experience. You're the same Chris, the same person, the same day becomes much more hedonistic. You want to have a nice ambience, you want to have them like great food, and you're willing to spend much more money. So people switch between various mindsets, and they are kind of, in some sense, slaves of context. And so you have to understand that the way a person behaves in JCPenney would not be the same way the same person would behave in Target and would not be the same way the same person would behave in Apple. So if human behavior is so complex, what can we do when we try to predict it? And, and the answer is research. Now, the problem with research is that, you know, I started this podcast by talking about the non-conscious nature of human behavior. And if you acknowledge that, then the next point is, well, if, if human behavior is non-conscious, then how can I, like, do surveys or ask people why you're buying and use those self-reports to make decisions? And that's why people like Steve Jobs and, and Ron Johnson would say that, well, you know, traditional market research might not be so useful. And I agree with them that many of the self-reports have to be interpreted very carefully. But the way around that is to do experiments. And I'm a big fan of experiments where you don't ask people what you would buy or why you would buy. 
Instead, you expose them to different stimuli. If you're at JCPenney, if you're on Johnson, you take one store, and at one store, you remove all the price cues and implement the fair and square pricing strategy. And another store, which is quite comparable on all of the dimensions, then you implement the regular pricing strategy with lots of discounts. And then you observe how people are responding to that stimuli. And that observation is going to be way much more valuable than going and asking customers, how would you behave or why would you behave in a certain way? So research can be useful if it is executed and done properly. And I think experimentation is one way to reduce failures in predicting human behavior. You know, I've always thought about this in a, in a different context. So I was traditionally educated as a scientist, so I've never really understood how business experiments are handled in a, in a good way. Could you give me personally and for our listeners as well, you know, what is a good experiment and what makes up a good experiment? Maybe give us an example of, something, of an experiment you've worked on. There are two aspects of any experiment or, or behavioral research that you do. One is understanding the substantive relevance or what problem are you solving. The problem that you're solving or the intervention that you're suggesting does that work in the real world. And we refer to that as external validity in our, in our field. And the other one is more dealing with the internal validity, understanding like why does this happen? What is the core construct, mental construct that is causing it to happen? So you have to often use multiple methods to probe these two things. And I think it's best illustrated with an example. So a few years ago, I got intrigued by this question whether the mode in which we pay for our products, whether we pay by cash or credit card, affects what we buy and eat. This was basically triggered by the obesity epidemic, which was changing the BMI profile of this country in, in a very, very rapid pace, not just in this country, but in many countries across the world. In 1980s, uh, I think there was not a single state in the United States that had more than 20% people who were overweight. By 2010, there is not a single state in the United States that's got less than 20% people who are uh, overweight, clinically with BMI more than uh, 30. So there has been a very sharp increase in the number of um, overweight people across the country. And this is true, I think, for lots of other uh, countries in the world. And of course, it's a very complex problem and is driven by various factors. But as a consumer psychologist, I was interested in whether something like the mode of payment might have in some way contributed to this. So there are two parts of the problem. One is, is there any reliable relationship between mode of spending and the kind of food that people buy and eat? And that's the question that deals with the external validity of the problem. You have to like look at the real data and see, does this, this happen in the real world? The second part of the problem is, why does this happen? And that's when you have used experiments and try to get to the bottom of it. So that's how you use experiments. So what we did is, we looked at the actual shopping behaviors of around 1,000 households and analyzed their shopping habits for a period of six months. So I could, for example, if I had access to your data, I could see how many times you went to Wegmans, what products you purchased at Wegmans, and each time you're purchasing the product at Wegmans, how did you pay for it? Did you pay by using cash, debit card, or credit card? And then I, I had a list of the items that were in your shopping basket, and I could code and see, well, how many of them were unhealthy, how many of them were more impulsive. And I could start predicting whether the mode of payment had a significant effect on the impulsiveness or the unhealthiness of your shopping basket. So we did this analysis with around 1,000 households, and we found that people were indeed more likely to have purchased unhealthy food items when they went to the shopping market and paid using credit cards or debit cards. Well, an interesting aside here is that the debit card, although normatively works like cash, 
but psychologically it's closer to a credit card. So when you pay with the debit card, it almost feels as if you are paying by a credit card. Because what is common between debit and credit card is that there are more abstract modes of payment. You don't see the money going out and therefore you don't feel bad of spending money. Whereas in the case of cash, you can see the money going out and that makes you feel bad. Anyway, so this is uh, real shopping data. Uh, you know, that's interesting. It's supportive. But many people could turn around and argue that, how do you know that this is causal, right? It could be that people who are more impulsive and more unhealthy eaters, they tend to use credit cards and debit cards. And whereas the people who are more healthy eaters might be using cash. Like, how can you establish that mode of payment is causing it? And this is where experiments come in. So in experiments, you can manipulate things. You can have interventions and then see the impact of those interventions on behaviors. So what we did is, you know, we would do a conceptual a proof of concept kind of a study, a conceptual experiment. We bring people into the lab and say, oh, new store is opening up in your neighborhood and we're interested in the kind of items that you normally would buy at the store. And they would see a bunch of items and they would just add, drag those products onto their cart or not buy the items. They would see the price, the name of the product, the brand, and the, the small picture of the product. The only thing that we manipulated is the following. Half of the uh, participants were told that this store, by the way, would accept only cash payment. And the other half were told that, well, you can pay using credit card or debit card at the store. So that was the only intervention. The end, like, you know, 20-minute study, everything was same. But that one screen which told them that before the shopping uh, task that you can either you can pay either only using cash or you can pay using credit and debit card. And then at the end of the study, we look at the shopping baskets and we analyze the kind of product that were in the shopping basket. And again, we saw that when people paid with credit or debit cards, they had more high calorie, less healthy, more impulsive products in their shopping basket. So this study, which is an experiment, along with the previous study, which is an archival study data, kind of corroborates and completes the picture and tells us that, okay, so mode of payment does have a causal effect on the kind of food items that people buy. And it kind of evoked some kind of mixed feelings in us because part of us were happy that we were able to identify a very generalizable and important result across multiple studies. But on the other hand, it also made us very scared that these subtle things that most people don't even think about can have huge impacts not on one person or one group of people, but across the multitude of people. You know, you talked a little bit earlier on in the podcast about this point nine nine, this 99 cent ending and how it was a subtle thing. And a lot of people told you it was about this anchoring effect or looking at the left hand of digit, but kind of in the context of those experiments that you're talking about, I wonder if you ever looked into that and maybe found something else might be going on there? Is it about that 0.99? Is it about the left anchoring? Is there something more there? Yeah, in fact, it's, it's fascinating that we never think about how the human mind processes numbers. We go to school when we, are, when we are kids and we learn to make sense of what one is, what one means and two means and 2.5 means and 2.39 means and 355 means. But we never pause to think, well, how, how do we actually make sense of these patterns of digits? Like three, five, and five, when we put five and five after three, our brain goes through a complex process to make sense of 355 with 355. What I learned, if I were to summarize this, is that there's a lot of information in the pattern of numbers which is beyond the magnitude of the numbers. So there are two examples I'd give which I think most people can relate to. The first one, of course, is a, is a 99 ending price is that I talked about earlier in the, in the podcast. They may not be aware why it happens, but most retailers do know that if they price a product at 2.99 instead of 3, 
people are more likely to buy. And the reason it happens is because of left to right reading. We read from left to right and our brain makes conclusions very, very fast. Right? So even before we finish reading, our brain is said, oh, okay, this is the magnitude. And therefore it's anchoring that causes the left digit effect. But there are other rigid patterns which are equally intriguing and gives us a again give us a glimpse into how the human brain works and the complexities, the speed with which we respond, and 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 our ability to discern patterns that we are not even aware of. So the one that I'd like to talk about is about prices in the real estate sector. So we found that some people list their house for very precise sale for list prices. So if you're selling a house in New York State, you could list your house for, let's say, $500,000. Or you could say, I want to sell this house for $501,563. Do you think that will make a difference? I don't think it will. <laughs> well, so that's what we thought too. But then we started looking at the data and we realized is that it's this, it's this great heuristic, this intuition that if you look at the distribution of numbers around us, Usually we use very precise numbers for small magnitudes. You go and buy gas and you pay $2.93 for gas. When you buy a car, you never say that I bought a car for 29560 You say I bought a car for $30,000. When you talk about the GDP of the country, you don't talk about in precise digits. You talk about like you know, $18 trillion. So the higher the number, the more likely that it will be rounded and it'll have lots of zeros. The smaller the number, the less likely it will be rounded, and it will have much fewer zeros, probably no zero at all. Our brain is so smart that independent of the actual magnitude of the number, the brain picks up this association that if there are lots of zeros, it's typically a large number. If there are very few zeros, it's typically, if it's a precise number, then it's a very uh, likely to be a smaller number, smaller magnitude. So when you list the house for $501,465, what the brain says is no zeros. If there are no zeros, then it makes the brain sit up and take note of it. And then, okay, why are there no zeros? Maybe it's not a high number. Maybe the person said the price very carefully. Maybe the person is not willing to negotiate. And because of all these processes that most people are not even aware of, most buyers are not even aware of, but all these things are kind of non-consciously happening in their mind, because of these processes, they end up negotiating less. And therefore, they end up paying more for that same house than if you had listed the house for $500,000, which is actually lower. So we did this study with actual transaction data from New York State and Florida. And we found that if you remove the three ending zeros and put non-zero numbers at the end of a list price, you could end up selling your house for approximately $1,500 or $2,000 more just by changing the pattern for the last three digits. So to answer your question, yeah, there are lots of ways in which the brain uses the patterns of digits as cues. And these patterns might not always overlap with the rules of arithmetic or the rules that we use to make sense of magnitudes. So just to, just to check my understanding here, you're saying it, it really isn't anchoring at all in this case. It's more something different. Is it specificity? Is it eliminating the zeros? Is it, just want to make sure I understand completely. That's, that's a great question. So I think what I'm trying to say is that there are lots of complex processes at play, and these processes vary from context to context. In the case of retail stores, you go in and you're comparing prices. So when you're comparing five with three, so if the, the regular price is five and the sale price is three, so instead of three, you use 2.99. Uh, so five versus 2.99, the difference seems higher than between five and three. 
when you go and you're looking for a house, you're not doing that kind of comparison shopping. You're looking at a house and you can say, okay, so should I negotiate? Should I not negotiate? And looking for cues to make sense of how high or how low is the number. So at that point in time, what kicks in is, first of all, some kind of an expectation violation. When you see a precise number, like somebody is selling the house for 501465 it violates your expectation. And that expectation violation kind of triggers a, a certain subsequent thought processes, like, okay, why is it like that? And usually, because of this heuristic that larger numbers are have more zeros and fewer zeros mean smaller numbers, you tend to generate thoughts which kind of supports the notion that this price is not too high. It's lower, so maybe I should not negotiate much. So to answer your question, it's, yeah, there are different processes that are activated in different contexts. So that's why it's difficult to predict human behavior, and one should not overgeneralize. You know, Manoj, over this talk, I have to say I feel a little down. This feels like we're learning how to classically manipulate people, almost like we're marionettes walking to the store, and corporations have us figured out. Is there some kind of silver lining here? How can marketing be used for good? Um, yes, indeed. I think um, I'm glad you asked the question because I would like to clarify that although I, everybody kind of looks at us and say, well, you work in the business school and also you are a marketing professor. You must be a devil with two horns. And um, I, I, I would like to use this opportunity to clarify, no, we are not funded by companies and most of us and most of other people like me, they are interested in studying human behavior. And uh, it just so that happens that we are in the business school, so we study in the context of, of buyer decision making. But we are mostly interested in coming up with a scientific theory of how the mind works. And these insights can be used for a lot of good things too, right? There are lots of nudge-type experiments, which uh, now the Richard Taylor's Nobel Prize has uh, generated a lot of interest in that by lots of companies. So there are lots of nudge-type experiments uh, being done by lots of companies, and we can use these insights to make the society a better place as well. We can make them more informed citizens. Uh, we can use these insights to make them vote better. Uh, we can and use these insights to make them recycle more. Uh, we can use these insights to eat, make them eat healthier. These are these are kind of agnostic tools, which can be either used for evil, and I have to acknowledge and concede that some people do use them, surely with a point of view of maximizing profits. But that's not necessarily the case. It can be also used for the betterment of society. So on that on that positive or maybe more uplifting note, um, is there something new that you might be working on that our listeners uh, might be interested in? Yeah. Um, I think I've just recently completed a paper on how food stamp users buy food items. And I think that might also relate to the previous question that you asked. So we examined, you know, we talked about how mode of payment has a significant impact on what people buy and um, what kind of food items people buy and how unhealthy their consumption is. And one of the big debates that is going on in the country now is whether the food stamp subsidies are contributing to the obesity epidemic at the bottom of the pyramid. So um, we do know that people um, who are financially underprivileged tend to be a little more obese. And there are some people who are arguing that maybe by removing the food stamp subsidies, uh, you might be able to nudge them to consume more healthy food items. So to investigate that, we have looked at how the mode of payment affects the kind of food item that food stamp users use. Now, I've already told you earlier that if you look at the non-food stamp users, then people, when they pay with cash, 
then they are more likely to buy healthy food items or put it differently they are less likely to buy unhealthy food items but when they pay with credit card they become more likely to buy unhealthy food items now when we looked at the same test for the food stamp users we found no such effect what we found is are two things one food stamp users are more likely to buy more unhealthy food item two they are completely immune to the effect of mode of payment so regardless of whether they pay with credit card debit card or cash they have more higher calorie food items in their shopping basket so to me this is a very powerful insight because what it tells us is that well at least the effect cannot be attributed to the food stamp subsidies so their their propensity to eat a healthy food item cannot be attributed to spending money on food stamp and we have some follow up studies where we find that the root cause of their propensity to consume higher calorie food item is because of the bias they have towards unhealthy food items so if you ask most people how unhealthy is is a donut or how unhealthy is a, is a cheesecake or or a slice of pie many people might say it's not very healthy but food stamp users are slightly less likely to say that and because they are less likely to say that they don't feel bad even when they spend their hard earned cash on these food items so these kind of insights can enable us to take more informed policy decisions rather than uh, shooting from our hip and on that note professor manoj thomas thank you so much for your time we are happy that you were able to come and talk with us on present value it was an absolute pleasure chris i really enjoyed talking with you and thank you for doing this podcast Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Caroline Wright, Michael Brady, and Harrison Joe. Editor was also Harrison. I'm your host Chris Alberico. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Podington Bear. Logo by Kaleche Pomango. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Present Value.